Hi hi, welcome welcome, this is Metapol with me, Cactus. Today on the show we're going to be talking about some fundamental faults in journalism, and also some faults in human nature that lead to the propagation of fake news and to poor media ecosystems. While it is a problem worldwide, it can be reduced in some areas by regulation and ethical standards, including Canada, Germany, and South Korea, which, while they have their own problems, are relatively better in terms of media quality than the rest of the world. The first topic that I'm going to talk about has entered the mainstream in some areas. This is the attention economy, often talked about when talking about social media. The attention economy is generally the idea that different companies are competing in order to gain the attention of an audience. This means that the goal of those companies is to hold someone's attention for as long as possible, which leads to some algorithms such as on YouTube suggesting more and more fringe content for example, or of mainstream media adopting a very short segment time and catering to the lowest common denominator in terms of attention span. Now, one major consequence of the attention economy is the effect of choice overload. Choice overload is the psychological effect where people essentially freeze up and fail to critically think about the decisions that they're making when presented with too much information. If you have a menu with too many items, then often people just resort to ordering what they've already had before or just picking the first item on the menu instead of actually thinking through the tastes and the choices that they want to make. The same effect happens with media. If you have an overload of the amount of information, the amount of different stories, the amount of news sources that someone experiences, then they think much less critically about the information that they're receiving. They don't actually analyze it for its quality or its truth or its consistency, but they instead resort to their presupposed ideas, their ideologies, their assumptions that may or may not be true. Unfortunately, this has a severe negative effect in politics and has led to what I like to call the politics of distraction. This means that politics, especially in political media, is not necessarily about solving the problems that people face on a day-to-day -day basis, most notably right now, the pandemic, as well as the economic depression, but instead on wedge issues, issues that are incredibly decisive and not necessarily actionable by the government. One example of a wedge issue in some countries, such as the United States, is abortion. Abortion is an incredibly difficult issue to debate because it's not actually based on anything that's measurable. Abortion is generally an issue debated on moralistic or pseudo-moralistic lines, where people essentially resort to their ideological corners and to the baseline emotional connections that their ideologies have with certain positions. This means that someone's position on abortion isn't determined by a statistic or an outcome, it's just determined by what they already believe, and it's incredibly difficult to change that. However, no matter what you think about abortion, the fact is that the pandemic has orders and orders and orders of magnitude more importance. And while there is still more coverage of the pandemic in media, there's always a disproportionate amount of information given on various abortion stories, such as Supreme Court rulings, relative to the issues that would actually affect people on the ground. Another type of these wedge issues is the flame bait issues, the issues that would otherwise be uncontroversial, aside from the extreme criticism from one side or the other. This includes the topic of violence in some subsets of Black Lives Matter protests that I already talked about in the previous episode. For those who don't remember, the violence in Black Lives Matter protests represents less than 0.01% of people, it represents a very very small margin, and they are denounced by almost all of the local Black Lives Matter organizers. However, there are still people on prominent media outlets that tend to try to defend this violence simply because they know it will incite a reaction from the opposite side. 
Because of the effect of the attention economy, there's an amplification of voices that face opposition. This means that if you have an enemy to fight against, particularly of the opposing ideology, then your issue will actually gain more steam, and you'll be able to get people who are on the same political side in order to defend you, even if your position is otherwise indefensible, such as defending violence. This means that prominent figures will often intentionally take a more extreme or even just a strictly worse version of a position, simply to incite more opposition and to gain more influence and more attention through that. This leads to the incestuous cycle of extremists and media that I talked about before, where you'll often have extremists on one side, such as neo-Nazis or identitarians, have a key relationship with some critics even on the mainstream left, as they tend to amplify each other's voices. However, there is very little that we can actually do in terms of hard laws to enforce this. It's much more difficult as we have to have an intellectual standard for regular people in order for them to judge for themselves whether media is actually leading them towards solving their problems or whether they're just distracting. This can be affected by public education, but unfortunately for many people, that's not necessarily an option. Thus, we have to turn to journalists themselves. There is actually a shocking lack of journalistic ethics in countries such as the United States and in many Asian countries as well. There seems to be a very low quality of media in areas where there are no unwritten rules, or at least in areas where the unwritten rules are relatively lacking. This is an incredibly difficult thing to enforce, so we have to look for a broader solution. We'll expand further on the possible solutions near the end of this podcast, but keep those core ideas in mind as we continue. Next, we'll talk about something that's actually been indoctrinated throughout journalism that is just a fundamental misrepresentation and can be a possible cause of a lot of the political partisanship or the political bias that you see in media. This is storytelling journalism. Of course, it's almost considered a standard to include a lot of humanizing information in a lot of specific cases. This can draw all the way back to local newspapers where you actually had a fair chance of knowing people who were involved in various stories. But when you look at today, when we look at mass media, we can see that it's actually a fundamental source of misrepresentation and bias that happens in journalism. Think of mass shooters, for example. Of course, this has happened very frequently in the United States and even in Canada after the largest mass shooting in the country's history. Many prominent news sources, almost by default, try to include a lot of humanizing information, such as personal life background, of the perpetrator, which means that they were inherently sympathetic to the person they were covering even though obviously this person is a criminal and they're a mass shooter. This can also have harmful effects to the actual people being covered, even when those people have not committed a crime or are not exposed to any sort of problem. For example, take Slate Star Codex, which is a notable blog that the New York Times wanted to run a story on. However, because the owner of the blog did not want his personal information to be exposed to the public, which the New York Times had found, he instead chose to delete the blog and sink the entire story. Obviously, from this case, we can note that finding a lot of this personal information is actually something that's actively discouraging the participation and the creation of more interesting and more varied news stories because they can have a harmful effect to innocent people as well. Of course, we can't talk about this without talking about the perceived benefits. A lot of this humanizing information is supposed to give context or is supposed to provide a narrative for readers to follow in order to make it more entertaining for them to actually read over the information. 
Once again, this is what's taught in journalism school, and unfortunately, it is incredibly outmoded. This is because you can obviously see the attribution of this humanizing information as the conduit for a lot of political bias that happens in media. Whoever they're covering either will have an incredibly negative angle or an incredibly positive angle depending, depending on how media wants to characterize that humanizing information. If we instead removed it altogether and completely focused on the actions of various figures, of various politicians, etc., then we can actually scrub out a lot of that political bias. This is because this type of storytelling journalism is fundamentally based in manipulation. Yes, that manipulation can sometimes be used to catch an audience's attention. However, getting the audience's attention is already down to a science in this modern era. We should be looking at ways to increase the quality of our information instead of fundamentally introducing more bias into it. Although it would not fully solve the problem, one of the most important things to do is to campaign to remove this from the journalistic standard from something that's actually taught. If you actually take a critical lens to this, if you don't learn it based on a fundamental trust of an institution such as a school, then you're going to realize that it's a source of bias. However, because it's something that's so deep-rooted in the journalistic mentality, it's something that's avoided scrutiny for a long time. And simply by informing more journalists of this, we can actually make a difference here. Next, let's talk about microcosm politics. One of the phrases that I personally detest the most is when people say something is a microcosm of the country or of the world. This is more often than not misused and used to completely misrepresent information and make a political argument without any source of relevant data. One example of this is with school shootings, particularly with the AR-15 ban. This is because if you compare the number of deaths from assault weapons to essentially any other source of death in the United States or in any other country such as Canada, then you'll be able to see that it's statistically irrelevant compared to many other sources of death. This means that if you took all the money that you would put into making an AR-15 ban and AR-15 buyback, and you instead invested it into improving vehicle safety, or instead invested it into heart disease prevention for example, then you would save orders of magnitude more lives. This means that the policy to actually address these issues are fundamentally a misuse of funding. That being said, there can be a real conversation to be had about gun homicides, and especially about gun suicides. However, AR-15s are simply not the problem. One of the phrases that's most associated with the whole school shooting protest movement is, quote-unquote, I am not a statistic. And this is one of the most disgusting misuses of political slogans in order to misrepresent fundamental issues and to create a wedge issue out of nothing. Let's just completely dissect the slogan. First of all, everyone is a statistic. Everyone is eventually going to be part of the death rate. And what we can do is try to slow that down as much as possible. The suggestion that quote-unquote I am not a statistic with regards to mass shootings is a fundamental suggestion that say the people who die from car crashes or the people who die from heart disease that their lives are somehow meaningless because of that. And unfortunately someone who dies of those causes still dies in real life. Their life is no less important than someone who dies in a mass shooting. And trying to suggest otherwise is simply negligent. What they actually try to do with that slogan is to manufacture a wedge issue, is to manufacture an issue that people care about based on their emotion and not actually based on measurable impacts, in fact in the face of measurable impacts. 
Essentially what they're doing is they're trying to set up a powerful political tactic that doesn't actually respond to reality, that doesn't actually respond to the effectiveness in terms of saving lives. And this is what tends to happen when microcosm politics is put into use. However, how you can verify whether microcosm politics is being used responsibly or irresponsibly is two things. One, look at the actual scale of the problem, and to look at the actual effect of the policies that are going to be put into place. One of the good uses of this, actually, is Black Lives Matter. That's because while police shootings may still be a relatively small sample size compared to the population of the country, there is a wider pattern, and not only a correlation, but a causation in terms of policies such as stop and frisk, for police harassment of minority individuals, particularly African American individuals. This means that there are broader policies that are put into place that actually do have an impact on a very large scale, and that there are very practical solutions in solving those things, such as the police reform that we already talked about last episode, such as removing those already harmful policies, and actually creating significant change in terms of what happens in police harassment or police shootings. There is a very large overwhelming problem that can be solved with policy that is being represented by these smaller cases of individual police shootings. In other words, when people talk about school shootings and AR-15s, they're bluffing. When people talk about Black Lives Matter, they're representing something larger that actually is there with these smaller cases. If we take all three of these media problems, mix them together, and also add a bit of politics, then we get the most drastic issue in political coverage to this day. Essentially, what politicians try to do is instead of fighting against their opponents' ideas, they try to create a fake version of their opponents based on either some of their allies or misrepresentations of what they believe in order to create an enemy to fight against that is much worse than the actual candidate. This is how you end up with, once again using an American example, of Biden being portrayed as somehow far left, as against America, or Trump as somehow being a fascist dictator. Of course, none of this is true. In reality, it's more like an old man who isn't completely sure what he's doing, fighting against an old man who's definitely not sure what he's doing and also won't listen to his doctor. The reality is much less scary, and the reality can also be very easily defined and understood by looking at coronavirus policies and other economic policies. However, when you have this shadow boxing effect, you result in monolith politics. You result in political parties being smeared as their most far-left proponents, even if very many figures in those political parties denounce the extremists or denounce the identitarians that are not actually being represented in mainstream politics. This also leads to one of the most disingenuous arguments, which is the slippery slope argument, which essentially states that if you concede on even the smallest political grounds, then eventually you will concede everything. And obviously this is false, we've seen very many political changes throughout all of history and none of them have resulted in a slippery slope, none of them have resulted in overwhelming political change in terms of one party or the other. In fact, once again, all of these are used to distract from the actual issues at hand, all of these are used to distract from actual accountability from a party to its constituents. Because when you have shadow boxing, when you have smearing of an opponent as somehow the worst, most disgusting versions of their party sycophants, then you don't actually have to promise your constituents anything. Unfortunately, as with a lot of media malpractice that happens, there is no quick fix, no silver bullet that will immediately solve everything. Not even close. The only way to actually make a significant difference in this 
is to instill an ethical obligation into journalism, to actually go to those institutions where journalists are being trained and to ensure that they're actually trained on representing the truth. This is something that has to be instilled in the journalistic culture, which means that, unfortunately, it's going to be a long fight to get it done. Just one additional side story that I'm going to touch on briefly is journalistic magnification. And this doesn't actually play into a lot of those broader political problems that I actually talked about, but it's something important to understand anyway. The reason why you see disproportionate representation of New York City and New York State in American media, as well as Toronto and Canadian media, and the same thing for many other Western nations, is that journalism is generally focused in one area. Most news companies are either hosted in one city or two cities. And this means that those people will be experiencing the impacts of those areas of those specific cities, states, or provinces much more than the impact of other local stories. That's why you always tend to have disproportionate media attention focused in those areas, such as in the most recent media coverage of the coronavirus pandemic, where you had a lot of disproportionate representation from Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, as well as from Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York City. This isn't something that actually has an extreme negative impact on the public, but it is something to note and it does go to explain why politicians from New York tend to have some disproportionate media coverage. Moving on, let's talk about one such wedge issue that's been gaining more and more steam over the past few weeks. That of course is quote-unquote cancel culture. Now let's get the most important thing out of the way. If you're an ordinary person who's not working in a politics-adjacent sector, then you have an incredibly low probability of actually being quote-unquote cancelled. The number of people who have been fired due to their political views is lower than the number of car crash deaths in almost every developed country. This means that if you're an ordinary person working in an area that's not, say, journalism or politics or some other type of media, then you have an incredibly low chance of being fired based on any sort of public statement that you've made on social media. However, it is a problem that does affect journalism, so we're going to talk about it in this episode. The other thing that's important to understand about quote-unquote cancel culture is that it's something that's been around for almost the entirety of civilization. Media companies do exert a lot of pressure, especially political pressure, on the reporting of individual journalists. Any journalist that's trying to claim that cancel culture is a recent development is either being incredibly naive or is just flat-out lying. Take the attempted cancellation of British writer J.K. Rowling, for example. No, I'm not talking about the recent one, I'm talking about the one that occurred near the mid-2000s. Of course, this was when quote-unquote fundamentalist Christian mother groups tried to remove Harry Potter books from schools because it was quote-unquote the work of the devil. Of course, this movement by a very small part of the fringe right was unsuccessful, and Harry Potter is still popular to this day. However, it is a political tactic that tends to be used by both sides of the aisle. There is a serious conversation, on the other hand, whether it would be beneficial for the political environment if we were to get rid of it on both sides altogether. Of course, this would require mutual disarmament, and it's not necessarily something that either side of the political media or of existing political infrastructure want to do. We have to talk about the fundamental arguments being made about cancel culture, so let's get the legal argument out of the way. Of course, there are no legal implications to a company firing someone because they disagree with them on political views. That is within a company's right to do. The same thing is true for social media companies, who, right now under US law, and under many international laws as well, do have the ability to censor content based on their terms of service. 
Despite the fact that it is perfectly legal to do so, many of these actions are considered to have a negative impact on political discourse overall, creating a chilling effect on many dissident journalists. This effect was brought to light in a rather satirical way by the effects of the recent letter published in Harper's Magazine, where many people signed onto a letter decrying the effects of so-called cancel culture and were immediately targeted afterwards. Of course, a view on cancel culture itself is a political view, and it is well in the jurisdiction of many companies and organizations to fire people based on those political views. However, we once again have to look at the same mechanisms that we talked about in our first episode to decide whether this is something that is actually beneficial to any political side. First of all, is it actionable? Well, yes, many companies do have that authority. Second, does it actually solve an issue? If the goal is to have a centralizing political message in a lot of those media institutions, then yes, it does solve the issue. However, the most important thing to understand here is what the goal of quote-unquote cancelling someone actually is. Of course, as with a lot of these political media games, the goal is political power. The goal is to create that chilling effect for journalists on the opposing side, whether cancel culture is a tactic used on the left wing or whether it's a tactic used on the right wing. The goal is always to reinforce a narrative by creating a greater media share of people who are aligned with any given point of view. Of course, this is very critical to what I talked about before with regards to the attention economy. Because people are generally overloaded by a lot of the information that they receive, by creating a more monolithic media environment for people to easily fall into, you can further enforce those political values while receiving less criticism from the other side and without exposing those people who are trapped in those echo chambers to more political debate. Essentially, the goal is to create media segregation. Now keeping this in mind, let's talk about who this benefits. This benefits greatly the actors on the right and on the left. It's exactly these types of media games that create strongly entrenched populations, people who are extremely ideological, who have a fundamental emotional connection and loyalty to a political party, instead of being someone who makes decisions based on the policies proposed and based on the effects that leaders would have on the country. This is exactly the type of political atmosphere, for example, that would lead to a cult-like following of one party or another. It also plays into a lot of the political factors that I talked about in this episode and the previous one. You see, the fundamental rationale for silencing dissidents, for enforcing an increasingly monolithic political opinion within various media outlets, is the shadow boxing that we already talked about. If you see one political candidate or the other to be a fundamental problem to the democracy, or to be a fundamental problem to people, then you're going to want to take militant action against it. The very shadow boxing that the media atmosphere creates is exactly the same force that will further divide it. This is best shown in a common quote-unquote cancel culture tactic, where many people try to draw a chain of association from one person to another person who is purporting some sort of violence or some sort of extremist position. One such example are the attacks on Cenk Uygur, one of the hosts of a left-leaning political network called the Young Turks. Attempts were made to connect Uyghur to leader of the KKK, David Duke, through an interview where David Duke said, I'm not a Nazi, and Uyghur replied sarcastically, Oh, of course you're not. These comments were then used out of context, and were used as a tool to attack him through association. The implication here is that by any interaction, even an interview where the interviewer was oppositional, would be a sign of connection between one figure and the other. Of course, in this case, you would try to implicate someone 
due to an association with someone who is involved with an organization that has committed many hate crimes. You can see that this guilt by association fundamentally uses the same logic as the monolith politics and the shadow boxing that happens in a lot of toxic media ecosystems. By smearing one political ideology or one political party as all the same, you can do the same in a rather conspiratorial manner by having networks of people, one of whom has interacted with the next and so on, and you can draw a connection between people who are relatively moderate or even apolitical to people who have advocated for violence or have committed other such crimes. As such, it has become increasingly easy to use this guilt by association in order to implicate people for things that they have not even said, for things that they explicitly denounce, and for this type of monolith politics to grow. One of the most important things in order to reduce partisanship and in order to refocus the accountability from political parties to their constituents is to do away with monolith politics, is to understand that within both parties there is an ever-increasing conflict between various factions and various individuals for the future of the party, and that they generally do not agree on any given extremist policy, and that the worst of any group does not represent all of the group. As such, I'm going to propose a policy on cancel culture that probably almost no one agrees with. I think there's no reasonable way to force companies to continue to employ those who have explicitly expressed political views that are against the message that a company is trying to promote. However, I think that the implication by association holds absolutely no water, completely misrepresents the political views of various individuals, and is also a very strictly definable practice that can be implemented. In other words, I think that there can be bipartisan legislation to explicitly ban the firing based on association with others. This means that while action can be taken based on an individual's political views, that they cannot be taken based on interactions with other people, which is the effect that actually contributes towards this hyperpartisanship and towards more of the negative ends of this quote-unquote cancel culture. Finally, after talking about so many short-term solutions, let's talk about building the long-term media infrastructure for the better. Of course, some of this fundamentally relies on trusting the government. That's why you have countries like I mentioned before, like Germany, Canada, and South Korea, that do tend to have higher levels of ethics and higher levels of government regulation. This is because the people of those countries fundamentally understand that those regulations will be used to keep the ecosystem safe, will be used to enforce higher quality media, and will not be used as a political bludgeon. This is how you ha implement impartiality regulations, for example, which does play a role in reducing this damaging media. However, one of the most important things that can be done is to inoculate the public against a lot of the misinformation and a lot of the choice overload that is fundamentally built into modern journalism. The number one thing that can be done is to increase public education, is to teach media literacy, and to teach people to build systems in order to make complicated political decisions based on high amounts of information. Even just listening to this podcast, understanding the roles that various political media play, and the long-term effects of various policies is a way to build a lot of public information. In fact, once again, that's why I'm not taking donations for this podcast, that's why I want this to spread as far as possible, and that's why this specific issue of reforming media malpractice is incredibly important to me. In fact, just by listening to this, I can guarantee that you're probably someone who's much less likely to actually fall for a lot of these political traps, and that's something that I can be glad about. So if you want to create some significant change in how media is interpreted and how the ecosystem functions as a whole, then yes, there are long-term goals that we can strive for. 
We can push for public education reform. We can push for impartiality restrictions and higher ethics standards based on all of these problems that we listed before. However, the easiest thing that you can do right now with essentially no effort is just to share this podcast, educate more people that way, and promote a brighter future. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Meta underscore Paul, and you can also follow us on Instagram at MetapoliticsPodcast. Thanks for listening, and hopefully we can see a brighter, more honest media in the future.